Chapter Nine of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Nine: Birds in the Bush. Rosa having no relation that she knew in the world, had from the seventh year of her age known no home but the nun's house, and no mother but Miss Twinkleton. Her remembrance of her own mother was of a pretty little creature like herself, not much older than herself, it seemed to her, who had been brought home in her father's arms, drowned. The fatal accident had happened at a party of pleasure. Every fold and colour of the pretty summer dress and even the long wet hair with scattered petals of ruined flowers still clinging to it, as the dead young creature, in its sad, sad beauty, lay upon the bed, were fixed indelibly in Rosa's recollection. So were the wild despair and the subsequent bowed-down grief of her poor young father, who died broken-hearted on the first anniversary of that hard day. The betrothal of Rosa grew out of the soothing of his year of mental distress by his fast friend and old college companion, Drood, who likewise had been left a widower in his youth. But he too went the silent road into which all earthly pilgrimages merge, some sooner and some later, and thus the young couple had come to be as they were. The atmosphere of pity surrounding the little orphan girl when she first came to Cloisterham had never cleared away. It had taken brighter hues as she grew older, happier, prettier. Now it had been golden, now roseate, and now azure, but it had always adorned her with some soft light of its own. The general desire to console and caress her had caused her to be treated in the beginning as a child much younger than her years. The same desire had caused her to be still petted when she was a child no longer. Who should be her favourite? Who should anticipate this or that small present, or do her this or that small service? Who should take her home for the holidays? Who should write to her oftenest when they were separated? and whom she would most rejoice to see again when they were reunited. Even these gentle rivalries were not without the slight dashes of bitterness in the nuns' house. Well for the poor nuns in their day, if they hid no harder strife under their veils and rosaries. Thus Rosa had grown to be an amiable, giddy, wilful, winning little creature, spoilt in the sense of counting upon kindness from all around her, but not in the sense of repaying it with indifference. Possessing an exhaustless well of affection in her nature, its sparkling waters had freshened and brightened the nun's house for years, and yet its depths had never yet been moved. What might betide when that came to pass? What developing changes might fall upon the heedless head and light heart then remained to be seen? By what means the news that there had been a quarrel between the two young men overnight, involving even some kind of onslaught by Mr. Neville upon Edwin Drood, got into Miss Twinkleton's establishment before breakfast, it is impossible to say. 
whether it was brought in by the birds of the air, or came blowing in with the very air itself when the casement windows were set open, whether the baker brought it kneaded into his bread, or the milkman delivered it as part of the adulteration of his milk, or the housemaids, beating the dust out of their mats against the gate-posts, received it in exchange, deposited upon the mats by the town atmosphere, certain it is that the news permeated every gable of the old building before Miss Twinkleton was down, and that Miss Twinkleton herself received it through Mrs. Tisher, while in the act of dressing, or, as she might have expressed the phrase to a parent or guardian of a mythological turn, of sacrificing to the graces. Miss Landless's brother had thrown a bottle at Mr. Edwin Drood. Miss Landless's brother had thrown a knife at Mr. Edwin Drood. A knife became suggestive of a fork, and Miss Landless's brother had thrown a fork at Mr. Edwin Drood. As in the governing precedence of Peter Piper, alleged to have picked the peck of pickled pepper, it was held to be physically desirable to have evidence of the existence of the peck of pickled pepper which Peter Piper was allegedly to have picked, so in this case it was held psychologically important to know why Miss Landless's brother threw a bottle, knife, or fork, or bottle, knife, and fork, for the cook had been given to understand it was all three, at Mr. Edwin Drood. Well, then, Miss Landless's brother had said he admired Miss Bud. Mr. Edwin Drood had said to Miss Landless's brother that he had no business to admire Miss Bud. Miss Landless's brother had then upped—this was the cook's exact information—with the bottle, knife, fork, and decanter, the decanter now coolly flying at everybody's head without the least introduction, and thrown them all at Mr. Edwin Drood. Poor little Rosa put a forefinger into each of her ears when these rumours began to circulate, and retired into a corner, beseeching not to be told any more, but Miss Landless begging permission of Miss Twinkleton to go and speak with her brother, and pretty plainly showing that she would take it if it were not given, struck out the more definite course of going to Mr. Crisp-Sparkle for accurate intelligence. When she came back, being first closeted with Miss Twinkleton, in order that anything objectionable in her tidings might be retained by that discreet filter, she imparted to Rosa only what had taken place, dwelling with a flushed cheek on the provocation her brother had received, but almost limiting it to that last gross affront as crowning some other words between them, and, out of consideration for her new friend, passing lightly over the fact that the other words had originated in her lover's taking things in general so very easily. To Rosa direct, she brought a petition from her brother that she would forgive him, and, having delivered it with sisterly earnestness, made an end of the subject. It was reserved for Miss Twinkleton to tone down the public mind of the nun's house. That lady, therefore, entering in a stately manner what plebeians might have called the schoolroom, but what, in the patrician language of the head of the nun's house, was euphemistically, not to say roundaboutly, denominated the apartment allotted to study, and saying with a forensic air, Ladies, all rose. Miss Tisher at the same time grouped herself behind her chief, 
as representing Queen Elizabeth's first historic female friend at Tilbury Fort. Miss Twinkleton then proceeded to remark that, "'Rumour, ladies, had been represented by the Bard of Avon. Needless were it to mention the immortal Shakespeare, or also called the Swan of his native city, not improbably with some reference to the ancient superstition that that bird of graceful plumage, Miss Jenkins, will please stand upright, sang sweetly on the approach of death, for which we have no ornithological authority. Rumour, ladies, had been represented by that bard, <coughs> who drew the celebrated Jew, as painted full of tongues. Rumour in Cloisterham, Miss Ferdinand, will honour me with her attention, was no exception to the great limner's portrait of Rumour elsewhere. A slight fracas between two young gentlemen occurring last night within a hundred miles of these peaceful walls, Miss Ferdinand, being apparently incorrigible, will have the kindness to write out this evening, in the original language, the first four fables of our vivacious neighbour, Monsieur La Fontaine, had been grossly exaggerated by rumour's voice. In the first alarm and anxiety, arising from our sympathy with a sweet young friend, not wholly to be disassociated from one of the gladiators in the bloodless arena in question, the impropriety of Miss Reynolds appearing to stab herself in the hand with a pin is far too obvious and too unglaringly unladylike to be pointed out. We descended from our maiden elevation to discuss the uncongenial and this unfit theme. Responsible inquiries having assured us that it was but one of those airy nothings pointed at by the poet, whose name and date of birth Miss Giggles will supply within half an hour, we would now discard the subject, and concentrate our minds upon the grateful labours of the day. But the subject so survived the day, nevertheless, that Miss Ferdinand got into new trouble by surreptitiously clapping on a paper moustache at dinner-time, and going through the motions of aiming a water-bottle at Miss Giggles, who drew a tablespoon in defence. Now Rosa thought of this unlucky quarrel a great deal, and thought of it with an uncomfortable feeling that she was involved in it, as cause or consequence or what not, through being in a false position altogether as to her marriage engagement. Never free from such uneasiness when she was with her affianced husband, it was not likely that she would be free from it when they were apart. To-day, too, she was cast in upon herself, and deprived of the relief of talking freely with her new friend, because the quarrel had been with Helena's brother, and Helena undisguisedly avoided the subject as a delicate and difficult one to herself. At this critical time of all times, Rosa's guardian was announced as having come to see her. Mr. Grugius had been well selected for his trust, as a man of incomparable integrity. 
but certainly for no other appropriate quality discernible on the surface. He was an arid, sandy man, who, if he had been put into a grinding-mill, looked as if he would have ground immediately into high-dried snuff. He had a scanty flat crop of hair, in colour and consistency, like some very mangy yellow fur tippet. It was so unlike hair that it must have been a wig, but for the stupendous improbability of anybody's voluntarily sporting such a head. The little play of feature that his face presented was cut deep into it, in a few hard curves that made it more like work, and he had certain notches in his forehead which looked as though nature had been about to touch them into sensibility or refinement when she had impatiently thrown away the chisel and said, I cannot, I really cannot be worried to finish off this man. Let him go as he is. With too great length of throat at his upper end, and too much ankle-bone and heel at his lower, with an awkward and hesitating manner, with a shambling walk, and with what is called a near sight, which perhaps prevented his observing how much white cotton stocking he displayed to the public eye in contrast with his black suit, Mr. Grugius still had some strange capacity in him of making, on the whole, an agreeable impression. Mr. Grugius was discovered by his ward, much discomforted by being in Miss Twinkleton's company, in Miss Twinkleton's own sacred room. Dim forebodings of being examined in something, and not coming well out of it, seemed to oppress the poor gentleman when found in these circumstances. "'My dear, how do you do? I am glad to see you. My dear, how much improved you are!' "'Permit me to hand you a chair, my dear.' Miss Twinkleton rose at her little writing-table, saying with general sweetness, as to the polite universe, "'Will you permit me to retire?' "'By no means, madam, on my account. I beg that you will not move.' "'I must entreat permission to move,' returned Miss Twinkleton, repeating the word with a charming grace. "'But I will not withdraw, since you are so obliging. "'If I wheel my desk to this corner-window, shall I be in the way?' "'Madam, in the way! "'You are very kind. "'Rosa, my dear, you will be under no constraint, I am sure.' Here Mr. Grugius, left by the fire with Rosa, said again, "'My dear, how do you do?' I am glad to see you, my dear. And, having waited for her to sit down, sat down himself. My visits, said Mr. Grugius, are like those of the angels. Not that I compare myself to an angel. No, sir, said Rosa. Not by any means, assented Mr. Grugius. I merely refer to my visits, which are few and far between. The angels are, we know well, upstairs. Miss Twinkleton looked round with a kind of stiff stare. I refer, my dear, said Mr. Grugius, laying his hand on Rosa's, as the possibility thrilled through his frame of his otherwise seeming to take the awful liberty of calling Miss Twinkleton, my dear. I refer to the other young ladies.' 
Miss Twinkleton resumed her writing. Mr. Grugius, with a sense of not having managed his opening point quite as neatly as he might have desired, smoothed his head from back to front, as if he had just dived, and were pressing the water out. This smoothing action, however superfluous, was habitual with him, and took a pocket-book from his coat-pocket, and a stump of black-lead pencil from his waistcoat-pocket. "'I made,' he said, turning the leaves, "'I made a guiding memorandum or so, as I usually do, for I have no conversational powers whatever, to which I will, with your permission, my dear, refer.' "'Well and happy? Truly. You are well and happy, my dear? You look so.' "'Yes, indeed, sir,' answered Rosa. "'For which,' said Mr. Grugius, with a bend of his head towards the corner window, "'our warmest acknowledgments are due, and I am sure are rendered to the maternal kindness and the constant care and consideration.' of the lady whom I have now the honour to see before me. This point, again, made but a lame departure from Mr. Grugius, and never got to its destination, for Miss Twinkleton, feeling that the courtesies required her to be by this time quite outside the conversation, was biting the end of her pen and looking upward, as waiting for the descent of an idea from any member of the Celestial Nine, who might have one to spare. Mr. Grugius smoothed his smooth head again, and then made another reference to his pocket-book, lining out well and happy, as disposed of. Pounds, shillings, and pence is my next note. A dry subject for a young lady, but an important subject, too. Life is pounds, shillings, and pence. Death is— a sudden recollection of the death of her two parents seemed to stop him, and he said in a softer tone, and evidently inserting the negative as an afterthought, "'Death is not pounds, shillings, and pence.' His voice was as hard and dry as himself, and fancy might have ground it straight, like himself, into high-dried snuff. And yet, through the very limited means of expression that he possessed, he seemed to express kindness. If nature had but finished him off, kindness might have been recognisable in his face at this moment. But if the notches in his forehead wouldn't fuse together, and if his face would work and couldn't play, what could he do, poor man? Pounds, shillings, and pence? You find your allowance always sufficient for your wants, my dear? Rosa wanted for nothing, and therefore it was ample. "'And you are not in debt?' Rosa laughed at the idea of being in debt. It seemed to her inexperience a comical vagary of the imagination. Mr. Grugius stretched his near sight to be sure that this was her view of the case. "'Ah!' he said as comment with a furtive glance towards Miss Twinkleton, and lining out pounds, shillings, and pence. I spoke of having got among the angels, so I did. Rosa felt what his next memorandum would prove to be, and was blushing and folding a crease in her dress with one embarrassed hand long before he found it. 
marriage <clears throat> mr grewgious carried his smoothing hand down over his eyes and nose and even chin before drawing his chair a little nearer and speaking a little more confidentially i now touch my dear upon the point that is the direct cause of my troubling you with the present visit otherwise being a particularly angular man i should not have intruded here i am the last man to intrude into a sphere for which i am so entirely unfitted i feel on these premises as if i was a bear with the cramp in a youthful cotillon his ungainliness gave him enough of the air of his simile to set Rosa off larting halfily. "'It strikes you in the same light,' said Mr. Grugius, with perfect calmness, "'just so. To return to my memorandum, Mr. Edwin has been to and fro here, as was arranged. You have mentioned that in your quarterly letters to me. And you like him, and he likes you.' "'I like him very much, sir,' rejoined Rosa. "'So I said, my dear,' returned her guardian, for whose ear the timid emphasis was much too fine. "'Good. And you correspond.' "'We write to one another,' said Rosa, pouting as she recalled their epistolary differences. "'Such is the meaning that I attach to the word correspond in this application, my dear,' said Mr. Grugius. "'Good. All goes well. Time works on. And at this next Christmas time it will become necessary, as a matter of form, to give the exemplary lady in the corner window, to whom we are so much indebted, business notice of your departure in the ensuing half-year.' Your relations with her are far more than business relations, no doubt. But a residue of business remains in them, and business is business ever. I am a particularly angular man, proceeded Mr. Grugius, as if it suddenly occurred to him to mention it. And I am not used to give anything away, if— for these two reasons some competent proxy would give you away, I should take it very kindly. Rosa intimated with her eyes on the ground that she thought a substitute might be found, if required. Surely, surely, said Mr. Grugius, for instance the gentleman who teaches dancing here, he would know how to do it with graceful propriety. He would advance and retire in a manner satisfactory to the feelings of the officiating clergyman and of yourself, and the bridegroom and all parties concerned. I am, I am a particularly angular man, said Mr. Grugius, as if he had made up his mind to screw it out at last, and should only blunder. Rosa sat still and silent. Perhaps her mind had not got quite so far as the ceremony yet, but was lagging on the way there. Memorandum. Will. Now, my dear, 
said Mr. Grugius, referring to his notes, disposing of marriage with his pencil, and taking a paper from his pocket. Although I have before possessed you with the contents of your father's will, I think it right at this time to leave a certified copy of it in your hands. And although Mr. Edwin is also aware of its contents, I think it right at this time likewise to place a certified copy of it in Mr. Jasper's hand. Not in his own? asked Rosa, looking up quickly. Cannot the copy go to Eddie himself? Why, yes, my dear, if you particularly wish it. But I spoke of Mr. Jasper as being his trustee. I do particularly wish it, if you please, said Rosa, hurriedly and earnestly. I don't like Mr. Jasper to come between us in any way. It is natural, I suppose, said Mr. Grugius, that our young husband should be all in all, yes. You observe that I say, I suppose. The fact is, I am a particularly unnatural man, and I don't know from my own knowledge. Rosa looked at him with some wonder. "'I mean,' he explained, "'that young ways were never my ways. I was the only offspring of parents far advanced in life, and I half believe I was born advanced in life myself. No personality is intended towards the name you will so soon change when I remark that while the general growth of people seems to have come into existence buds, I seem to have come into existence a chip. I was a chip, and a very dry one, when I first became aware of myself. Respecting the other certified copy, your wish shall be complied with. Respecting your inheritance, I think you know all. It is an annuity of two hundred and fifty pounds. The savings upon that annuity, and some other items to your credit, all duly carried into account with vouchers, will place you in possession of a lump sum of money rather exceeding seventeen hundred pounds. I am empowered to advance the cost of your preparations for your marriage out of that fund. All is told. "'Will you please tell me,' said Rosa, taking the paper with a prettily knitted brow, but not opening it, "'whether I am right in what I am going to say. I can understand what you tell me so very much better than what I read in law-writings. My poor papa and Eddie's father made their agreement together, as very dear and firm and fast friends.' in order that we, too, might be very dear and firm and fast friends after them? Just so. For the lasting good of both of us, and the lasting happiness of both of us. Just so. That we might be to one another even much more than they had been to one another. Just so. It was not bound upon Eddie and it was not bound upon me by any forfeit in case—don't be agitated, my dear—in the case that it brings tears into your affectionate eyes, even to picture to yourself, 
in the case of your not marrying one another no no forfeiture on either side you would have then been my ward until you were of age no worse would have befallen you bad enough perhaps and eddy he would have come into his partnership derived from his father and into its arrears to his credit if any on attaining his majority just as now rosa with her perplexed face and knitted brow bit the corner of her attested copy as she sat with her head on one side looking abstractedly at the floor and smoothing it with her foot in short said mr grewgious this betrothal is a wish a sentiment a friendly project tenderly expressed on both sides that it was strongly felt and that there was a lively hope that it would prosper there can be no doubt when you were both children you began to be accustomed to it and it has prospered but circumstances alter cases and i made this visit to-day partly indeed principally to discharge myself of the duty of telling you my dear that two young people can only be betrothed in marriage except as a matter of convenience and therefore mockery and misery of their own free will their own attachment and their own assurance it may or it may not prove a mistaken one but we must take our chance on that that they are suited to each other and will make each other happy is it to be supposed for example that if either of your fathers were living now and had any mistrust on that subject his mind would not be changed by the change of circumstances involved in the change of your years untenable unreasonable inconclusive and preposterous mr grewgious said all this as if he were reading it aloud or still more as if he were repeating a lesson so expressionless of any approach to spontaneity were his face and manner i have now my dear he added blurring out will with his pencil discharged myself of what is doubtless a formal duty in this case but still a duty in such a case memorandum wishes my dear is there any wish of yours that i can further rosa shook her head with an almost plaintive air of hesitation in want of help is there any instruction that i can take from you with reference to your affairs i i should like to settle them with eddy first if you please said rosa plaiting the crease in her dress surely surely returned mr grewgious you two should be of one mind in all things is the young gentleman expected shortly he has gone away only this morning he will be back at christmas nothing could happen better you will on his return at christmas arrange all matters of detail with him you will then communicate with me and i will discharge myself as a mere business acquaintance of my business responsibilities towards the accomplished lady in the corner window they will accrue at that season 
blurring pencil once again. Memorandum, leave. Yes, I will now, my dear, take my leave. Could I? said Rosa, rising, as he jerked out of his chair in his ungainly way. Could I ask you most kindly to come to me at Christmas, if I had anything particular to say to you? Why, certainly, certainly, he rejoined. Apparently, if such a word can be used of one who has no apparent lights and shadows about him, complimented by the question. As a particularly angular man, I do not fit smoothly into the social circle, and consequently I have no other engagement at Christmas time than to partake on the twenty-fifth of a boiled turkey and celery sauce with a, with a particularly angular clerk I have the good fortune to possess, whose father, being a Norfolk farmer, sends him up, the, the turkey up, as a present to me from the neighbourhood of Norwich. I should be quite proud of your wishing to see me, my dear. As a professional receiver of rents, so very few people do wish to see me, that the novelty would be bracing. For his ready acquiescence, the grateful Rosa put her hands upon his shoulders, stood on tiptoe, and instantly kissed him. Lord bless me, cried Mr. Grugius. Thank you, my dear. The honour is almost equal to the pleasure. Miss Twinkleton, madam, I have had a most satisfactory conversation with my ward, and I will now release you from the encumbrance of my presence. Nay, sir, rejoined Miss Twinkleton, rising with a gracious condescension, say not encumbrance, not so by any means. I cannot permit you to say so. The thank you, madam. I have read in the newspapers, said Mr. Grugius, stammering a little, that when a distinguished visitor, not that I am one far from it, goes to a school, not that this is one far from it, he asks for a holiday or some kind of grace. It being now the afternoon in the college, of which you are the eminent head, the young ladies might gain nothing except in name by having the rest of the day allowed them. But if there is any young lady at all under a cloud, might I solicit? Ah, oh, Mr. Grugius, Mr. Grugius, cried Miss Twinkleton, with a chastely rallying forefinger. Oh, you gentlemen, you gentlemen, fie for shame, that you are so hard upon us poor malign disciplinarians of our sex, for your sakes. But as Miss Ferdinand is at present weighed down by an incubus, Miss Twinkleton might have said a pen and incubus of writing out Monsieur La Fontaine. Go to her, Rosa, my dear, and tell her the penalty is remitted in deference to the intercession of your guardian, Mr. Grugius. Miss Twinkleton here achieved a curtsey, suggestive of marvels happening to her respected legs, and which she came out of nobly, three yards behind her starting-point. 
As he held it incumbent upon him to call on Mr. Jasper before leaving Cloisterham, Mr. Grugius went to the gatehouse and climbed its postern stair. But Mr. Jasper's door being closed, and presenting on a slip of paper the word cathedral, the fact of it being service-time was borne into the mind of Mr. Grugius. So he descended the stair again, and crossing the close, paused at the great western folding door of the cathedral, which stood open on the fine and bright, though short-lived, afternoon, for the airing of the place. "'Dear me,' said Mr. Grugius, peeping in, "'it's like looking down the throat of old time.' Old time heaved a mouldy sigh from tomb and arch and vault, and gloomy shadows began to deepen in corners, and damps began to rise from green patches of stone, and jewels cast upon the pavement of the nave from stained glass by the declining sun began to perish. Within the grill-gate of the chancel, up the steps surmounted loomingly by the fast-darkening organ, white robes could be dimly seen, and one feeble voice, rising and falling in a cracked, monotonous mutter, could at intervals be faintly heard. In the free outer air, the river, the green pastures, and the brown arable lands, the teeming hills and dales, were reddened by the sunset, while the distant little windows in windmills and farm homesteads shone patches of bright beaten gold. In the cathedral all became grey, murky, and sepulchral, and the cracked, monotonous mutter went on like a dying voice, until the organ and the choir burst forth and drowned it in a sea of music. Then the sea fell, and the dying voice made another feeble effort, and then the sea rose high and beat its life out, and lashed the roof, and surged among the arches, and pierced the heights of the great tower, and then the sea was dry, and all was still. Mr. Grugius had by that time walked to the chancel steps, where he met the living waters coming out. "'Nothing is the matter?' Thus Jasper accosted him rather quickly. "'You have not been sent for?' "'Not at all, not at all. I came down of my own accord. I have been to my pretty wards, and am now homeward bound again.' "'You found her thriving?' "'Blooming, indeed, most blooming. I merely came to tell her seriously—' what a betrothal by deceased parents is. And what is it, according to your judgment? Mr. Grugius noticed the whiteness of the lips that asked the question, and put it down to the chilling account of the cathedral. I merely came to tell her that it could not be considered binding against any such reason for its dissolution as a want of affection or want of disposition to carry it into effect, on the side of either party. May I ask, had you any special reason for telling her that? Mr. Grugius answered somewhat sharply, The especial reason of doing my duty, sir, simply that. Then he added, Come, Mr. Jasper, I know your affection for your nephew, and that you are quick to feel on his behalf. 
I assure you that this implies not the least doubt or disrespect to your nephew.' "'You could not,' returned Jasper, with a friendly pressure on his arm as they walked on side by side, "'speak more handsomely.' Mr. Grugius pulled off his hat to smooth his head, and having smoothed it, nodded it contentedly, and put his hat on again. "'I will wager,' said Jasper, smiling. His lips were still so white that he was conscious of it, and bit and moistened them while speaking. "'I will wager that—she hinted no wish to be released from Ned?' "'And you will win your wager if you do,' retorted Mr. Grugius. "'We should allow some margin for little maidenly delicacies in a young motherless creature, under the circumstances?' I suppose. It is not in my line. What do you think? There can be no doubt of it. I am glad you say so, because, proceeded Mr. Grugius, who had all this time very knowingly felt his way round to action on his remembrance of what she had said of Jasper himself, because she seems to have some little delicate instinct that all preliminary arrangements had best be made between Mr. Edwin Drood and herself, don't you see? She don't want us, don't you know? Jasper touched himself on the breast, and said somewhat indistinctly, You mean me? Mr. Grugius touched himself on the breast, and said, I mean us. Therefore let them have their little discussions and counsels together, when Mr. Edwin Drood comes back here at Christmas, and then you and I will step in and put the final touches to the business. "'So you settled with her that you would come back at Christmas?' observed Jasper. "'I see. Mr. Grugius, as you quite fairly said just now, there is an exceptional attachment between my nephew and me that I am more sensitive for the dear, fortunate, happy, happy fellow, than for myself. But it is only right that the young lady should be considered, as you have pointed out, and that I should accept my cue from you. I accept it. I understand that at Christmas they will complete their preparations for May, and that their marriage will be put in final train by themselves, and that nothing will remain for us but to put ourselves in train also, and have everything ready for our formal release from our trusts on Edwin's birthday. "'That is my understanding,' assented Mr. Grugius, as they shook hands to part. "'God bless them both!' "'God save them both!' cried Jasper. "'I said bless them,' remarked the former, looking back over his shoulder. "'I said save them,' returned the latter. "'Is there any difference?' End of chapter 9 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England In January 2008